0: Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to today's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Angela Breitenbach. is a university lecturer and fellow in philosophy at King's College, Cambridge. Her research focuses on the history of modern philosophy, and in particular the philosophy of Kant, as well as questions in the philosophy of science, philosophy of biology, and aesthetics. Angela's published a number of articles on those topics and she's the author of the monograph The Analogy of Reason and Nature and the title of Angela's talk today is Aesthetics in Science, a Kantian Proposal. Thanks very much Angela. Thank you and thanks for inviting me to speak um, to the Aristotelian Society. So um, I want to start with an observation which is that uh, many of the greatest natural philosophers and scientists have attached importance not only to the empirical success, but also to the aesthetic merit of their proofs and explanations and theories, and so on. So key figures in the history of science, ranging from Kepler to Poincaré, Einstein, Weil, Heisenberg, and Dirac in physics, and from Darwin to Watson, Crick, and Franklin in biology, were explicitly concerned with beauty and elegance. Poincaré, for example, regarded the beauty of nature as a motivation for scientific inquiry claiming that, I quote, the scientist does not study nature because it is useful to do so. He studies it because he takes pleasure in it, and he takes pleasure in it because it is beautiful. But many went further than this, um, taking beauty to be not only a motivation for the scientist, but an indication of the truth of theories. As Heisenberg put it for uh, example, I quote, if nature leads us to mathematical forms of great simplicity and beauty, we cannot help help thinking that they are true. And I think even more pointedly, Einstein argued that the only physical theories that we are willing to accept are the beautiful ones, Um, while Dirac claimed that, I quote, a theory with beauty is more likely to be correct than an ugly one that fits some experimental data. Moreover, as Watson remembered, Franklin found the double helix model of the structure of DNA simply, I quote, too pretty not to be true. Now, while this focus um, on aesthetic considerations may be widespread among scientists, I think that it raises a number of difficult questions and implications given that they are quite possibly subjective and most probably contestable. um, How can such considerations play a role in science if science is concerned with um, gaining objective knowledge? So the question um, I want to look at is um, whether aesthetic criteria can legitimately be linked to the truth of scientific claims. And for simplicity, I want to look at um, aesthetic considerations pertaining to theories, but I think that what I say um, may also extend to considerations about um, explanations, proofs, um, possibly experiments. But I'll, I'll just talk about theories here. Now, in the literature, treatments of the relation between the beauty and truth of scientific theories display two widespread tendencies. Um, And I call these tendencies because I don't find many worked out accounts um, but um, a number of assumptions made um, by those who who make claims about uh, beauty and science. So on the one side, um, we have Pythagorean approaches that affirm an intrinsic connection between beauty and truth, while subjectivist approaches on the other side see beauty as having, at best, a purely contingent link with the truth of scientific claims. But as I shall argue, um, both views have their problems. While the first fails to account for the apparent instability of the link between beauty and truth um, that is attested to by the historical evidence, the second is forced to reject outright um, a large part of how scientists themselves um, conceive of their work when they um, rely on aesthetic considerations. So my aim in this paper is to propose an alternative conception of beauty and science that avoids the difficulties on both sides. Um, So what I um, uh, look for is an account that credits scientists' aesthetic considerations without relying on an alleged metaphysical link between beauty and truth. In particular, by taking inspiration from Kant's aesthetic theory, I suggest that we can understand the aesthetic appreciation of scientific claims as uh, as linked to the character of our own intellectual activities um, that are involved in understanding and doing science. Moreover, I propose that it's because of this relation um, of aesthetic judgments with the conditions of understanding that um, scientists have a reason to take considerations of beauty into account. So um, I argue that it's through the link to understanding that aesthetic judgments um, are legitimately appealing to scientists, even though such judgments um, don't um, give us a proof or don't give us a, a necessary indication of the truth of theories. So um, my proposal um, for uh, understanding aesthetics and science in this way is motivated by the observation that um, the, the few discussions of aesthetics and science that exist um, usually focus on the link between beauty and truth without saying very much about um, the, the, the conception of aesthetics that they rely on. Um, I believe, by contrast to that, that um, beginning with an analysis of the notion of aesthetics um, that is presupposed is crucial for shedding light on the role that aesthetics can actually play and can legitmi- uh, legitimately play in science. So I want to put more aesthetics back into the discussion of um, aesthetics in science. So I'll, sh- I'll focus on um, the following two questions that I put um, uh, on the handout. I want to start by s- by um, asking Um, One, how should we understand aesthetic considerations in science before then tackling the question of um, the relation of such considerations to the aims of science. And I'll say um, a bit more about question one, but I hope to at the end give a sketch of how um, understanding question one will help us give an answer to um, the second question. So my argument will take the following three steps. Um, In section one, I'm going to say a few words about the Pythagorean and the subjectivist views that are distinguished. And um, I'll raise um, some of the uh, uh, problems for these two views. And I then want to spell out my alternative proposal in two steps. So in section two, I propose a Kantian conception of aesthetic judgments in science as second order judgments that relate only indirectly to the object um, judged, and directly to our own reflection on the object. So according to my proposal, um, we appreciate a theory aesthetically, when in reflecting on the theory, we become aware of our own intellectual capacities for making sense of the world by means of the theory. So this um, this will be my answer to um, the first question. In section 3, I then argue that if we take this conception as our starting point, we can provide an account of the role of aesthetics in science that promises to overcome the problems raised by the Pythagorean and the subjectivist positions. Um, More specifically, um, I want to suggest that if we take on board the Kantian um, reading reading that I suggest, we may regard aesthetic considerations as legitimately appealing to scientists, not because the phenomena themselves are um, simple or elegant or unified, Um, but because in searching for beauty, scientists um, aim for theories that provide understanding. So I'm going to um, give um, this as an outline of uh, my answer to question two, and I will then end by pointing towards some of the larger issues that um, a full answer to this uh, second question will have to uh, account for. before I start, just a couple of notes on methodology. I'm going to um, give an indirect argument for this Kantian conception of aesthetics and science insofar as I don't want to um, argue for the concept head-on, but propose it as a viable, um, uh, a viable alternative to the two views that I um, want to reject, and then um, um, focus on how um, such a, a, an alternative may overcome the problems okay. of the, the, the two alternatives. So in putting into focus the nature of aesthetic judgments in science, I aim to show that um, insofar as we conceive of aesthetic considerations as essentially connected to understanding, we can allow um, such considerations um, as being, uh, having a legit- legitimate place in science. And my resulting sketch of such um, larger issues as the relationship of beauty, understanding and truth at the end Um, will remain fairly programmatic, but I hope to sketch out a a framework for thinking about aesthetic considerations in the study of nature. Okay, so I start with um, section one, um, two tendencies, Pythagoreanism and subjectivism. So it seems to me that many scientists who explicitly engage with the question of beauty in their work seem to harbor what I what I want to call here um, Pythagorean tendencies. And the core idea here is that there exists a profound and intrinsic connection between the beautiful on the one hand and truth or, or the intelligible on the other. And more precisely, I think that um, we should understand this view as, as being a combination of two claims, even if they're not usually spelled out in this way. I think these, um, the tendencies that um, I find in the literature um, combine these two suggestions, where the first is um, a claim about the nature of aesthetic judgments, and the second a claim about the link of su- such judgments to um, the truth of theories. So first, according to the Pythagorean conception, it's commonly suggested that aesthetic considerations do not consist in any subjective uh, or idiosyncratic response, but in the intellectual grasp of certain properties, um, such as, for instance, simplicity or symmetry or um, um, unity among diversity. And this, um, I take it, is, is the the answer, the Pythagorean answer to the first question on the handout. That's why I've labeled it P- P1. Aesthetic judgments in science, according to this conception, are judgments about the objective features of theories. And uh, Poincaré gives a clear statement of this view when he claims that the kind of beauty which is relevant to science is not, I quote, that beauty which strikes the senses, but it's a special kind of beauty, a beauty which comes from the harmonious order of its uh, parts, that is, the sciences or the theories' parts and which a pure intelligence can grasp. So beauty, Poincaré claims here, is a property that has to do with harmonious order. And more importantly, it's a property to which we have intellectual access that we can know. Secondly, it's then usually assumed that um, theories which have aesthetic properties are more likely to be true than those which lack such properties, because nature itself has corresponding aesthetic qualities. Um, and this is um, what I've labeled P2 on the handout. So on this account, a simple theory is more likely to be true than um, one which adds extra complexity, for instance, because the natural world is governed by simple laws. So if we think of um, Darwin's theory of evolution as, as um, being beautiful because of its simplicity, um, then uh, the simplicity of the theory would in turn give insight into the simplicity of um, the, the principle that, un, that governs um, evolution, the evolution of species, so um, the second um, element of the Pythagor- Pythagorean view is expressed for instance by the physicist Chandra Sekhar, who um, claims that what the human mind perceives as beautiful finds its realization in nature, so this is um, the view that there is uh, 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 a direct connection between um, what we, um, the properties that we know as beautiful, and the properties that um, nature displays. Now, while this um, approach accounts, I think, for, for the aesthetic considerations that, that are often introduced in um, science. I think it faces serious problems, and I shall mention here only one of the most pressing ones, um, one that arises out of um, the historical evidence, which seems to be quite obviously um, speaking against both parts of the Pythagorean conception. So concerning P1, it seems that um, scientists have not always agreed on which theories should or should not be regarded as beautiful. And aesthetic judgments in science have, in fact, varied over time and with um, social and cultural context. So some theories were rejected, for instance, um, uh, as awkward or or ugly at first, um, but then considered natural or elegant um, uh, as um, uh, history progresses or from later perspectives. So um, to mention only one example from the 17th century, many rejected Kepler's elliptic model of planetary motion on aesthetic rounds because it seemed that um, the ellipses simply didn't cohere with um, the standards or the commitment of, of mathematical astronomy to uniform circular motion. Um, but um, what may have jarred with um, these uh, ideals of uniformity and simplicity fitted more nicely with an increasingly popular notion of, or, of a Mannerist conception of aesthetics that makes room for more playful forms. Um, and some historical, or quite a lot of historical work has been done on the kind of aesthetic Mannerist aesthetic uh, conception that um, informed Kepler's uh, research. So... Um, Other examples are, um, for instance, the the rise of Romanticism in the the 19th century, which which also influenced aesthetic ideals in um, 19th century science. But what this shows is um, that it seems at least as if um, there's variation between um, what different scientists in different historical periods considered um, to be aesthetically pleasing um, within science. Moreover, as the history of science also attests, and this concerns um, in particular um, claim P2, aesthetics hasn't always been a reliable guide to truth. So theories that were considered preferable on aesthetic grounds have in fact failed, while theories that were rejected on aesthetic grounds, at least by some, um, have been corroborated over time. So again... um, Some obvious examples: Newton's laws of motion and gravitation were widely considered to um, offer an elegant explanation of a host of um, um, observations, astronomical observations. But um, while they provided fundamental steps in the um, uh, development of physics, they they were that they were steps um, to be advanced upon and superseded by modern physics. Um, On the other hand, many physicists including Einstein and Dirac found quantum theory aesthetically displeasing, so um, they rejected quantum theory for aesthetic reasons such as um, um, the lack of visualization or uh, apparent implications of indeterminism and yet quantum um, physics is alive and well today. So, what this shows, I think, is that at least the historical evidence raises some serious serious doubts about the proclaimed objectivity, on the one hand, of aesthetic judgments in science, and um, the supposedly intrinsic connection uh, between beauty of th- uh, beauty um, uh, of theories and the truth uh, of theories. So. Um, I think there's a lot more to be said and and to be discussed about the um, Pythagorean account. But just to mention um, this one problem, um, I think, well, it raises the question whether we should um, um, conclude that scientists' aesthetic um, judgments are purely subjective and um, whether we should regard the aesthetic appreciation of a theory as um, while having at best a contingent connection with the success of, of scientific theories. And I think that a tendency to give positive answers to these questions is um, uh, a competing tendency in the literature. So according to this subjectivist views, uh, aesthetic considerations have no objective validity and hence lack any intrinsic connection with the truth of scientific claims. Um, and these are um, what I take to be the two subjectivist answers to, to questions one and two. I've labeled them as one and as, as two on the handout. Mm-hmm. Um, Chandrasekhar once again expresses um, the first element of this view when he claims, I quote, that to examine a physical theory and to state its aesthetic appeal is beset with difficulties. Like all discussions relating to beauty, it is subject to the tastes and temperaments of the individuals. Now, um, I think it's a a separate question how that um, subjectivist account of the nature of aesthetic judgments fits with the Pythagorean um, view that I attributed to him earlier, but I'll leave that uh, to one side. Um, Moreover, James McAllister um, expresses the... uh, um, second element of the subjectivist view when he claims that, I quote, scientists' canons for theory evaluation will be prey to aesthetic fashions. So the subjectivist conclusion, I think, has the advantage of accounting for um, this apparent instability of the connection between beauty and truth that um, the history of science attests to. But the difficulty is that it rejects um, outright the the significance that scientists seem to attribute to aesthetic considerations. So scientists may think that a beautiful theory um, points towards its truth is an indication of the success of the theory, but uh, according to the subjectivist proposal, they would simply be judging incorrectly. So so even if scientists think that they should follow certain aesthetic um, responses, they are simply um, uh, mistaken on the subjectivist view. Now, while I don't want to rule out um, at the start that um, perhaps there is something to this deflationary proposal, um, I wonder whether it's a little bit too quick in dismissing the the scientists um, um, uh, who want to make use of uh, aesthetic considerations. Um, and so my question is whether we can do better at, um, in explaining the appeal that aesthetic judgments seem to have, seem to exert on um, on scientists. Um, and I think that the difficulties that are raised about these two um, proposals should now inform the desiderata that... Um, Um, an account of aesthetics and science ought to satisfy. So I think that um, an account of beauty and science should A, explain the apparently uh, unstable link between beauty and truth, while also B, going some way towards showing that this link isn't altogether arbitrary, but has a legitimate role in science. So these are the two desiderata that I put at the the bottom of page one on, on the handout. And in the following two sections, I want to develop an approach with the aim of um, meeting these two desiderata. So um, I move on to section two, beauty and understanding. So what I'd like to propose is a different way of thinking about aesthetic judgments in science that construes uh, such judgments as neither consisting in objective claims about the particular properties of scientific theories as the Pythagorean view proposes, nor relying on purely subjective responses uh, to such properties as the subjectivist um, account holds. Instead, I suggest that we understand aesthetic judgments as responses to the the experienced fit between our intellectual capacities and the phenomena that the theory helps us to understand. So um, this is my proposal, um, uh, my Kantian proposal for answering question one. Um, that are labelled K1 on the handout, Um, and I want to spell this out in in more detail now. Um, Given that it's inspired by a Kantian conception of aesthetics, I'll start by saying a few words about the elements of Kant's aesthetic theory that I want to draw on um, uh, before examining how um, these elements may shed light on the the particular question of aesthetics and science. So... um, Judgments of beauty, according to Kant, are essentially dependent on the subject's active engagement with the object. They do not make any determinate claim about a property in the object, but are the result of the subject's way of reflecting on the object. So it's this mode of reflection, Kant claims, that we experience as aesthetically pleasing. So Kant essentially contrasts um, judgments of beauty with um, determinate judgments about objective features of the world. At the same time, however, Kant also distinguishes aesthetic judgments from ordinary emotional responses. Rather than consisting in purely subjective um, feelings, which may vary between different individuals, um, given different interests or desires they may have, um, aesthetic responses demand the agreement of others. So so, um, um, this is Kant's way of of, uh, uh, contrasting aesthetic judgments from ordinary emotional responses. And even though they are not anchored in any objective uh, property in the object, um, by reference to which we could prove um, the truth of an aesthetic judgment, they make a claim to intersubjective validity. Now Kant develops this twofold characterization of judgments of beauty in the critique of judgment by reference to what he calls the free play of our mental faculties, that is in particular the interaction of understanding and imagination. In aesthetic experiences, Kant argues we play around in imagination with what we perceive through the senses, in a way that is compatible, or as he puts it, in harmony, with conceptual understanding, without, however, settling on any particular um, conceptual uh, conception of the object. So the idea is that um, we combine and recombine in imagination um, different aspects of our sensory impression, um, without settling on. Um, any particular um, uh, presentation of the object as an object of a particular type or an object of a particular kind. Um, And it's this um, awareness um, of the intellectual activities that are involved in reflectively engaging with the object in this way that, um, Kant argues, triggers the feeling of aesthetic uh, pleasure. So it's an awareness that's not distracted, that's a, a pure awareness of our, of our intellectual capacities that's not distracted by any um, particular conceptual judgment. More specifically, um, it's our awareness that our intellectual capacities are in harmony, that is, that they are suited for understanding the object of reflection that is experienced as aesthetically pleasing. As Kant puts it in the Critique of Judgment, I quote, we are conscious um, of the activity of our faculties with the sensation of satisfaction. So aesthetic pleasure doesn't um, therefore result from the satisfaction of any particular preferences of the individual or from the recognition that the object has such and such properties, but from the individual's being aware and reflecting on the object of her own intellectual capacities and their general fit for understanding the world. And furthermore, since um, on Cancer Count we all share the same intellectual capacities, um, aesthetic judgments essentially incorporate a, uh, a claim to the agreement of others. They don't um, rely on any particular um, individual um, perspective or point of view. Now, while one may take issue with this um, particular story, the particular account that Kant gives of the free play of the faculties, I believe that the account offers two important insights that may shed light on the particular problem of aesthetics in science. So first of all, on Kant's conception, an aesthetic judgment is a second-order response rather than a first-order judgment about um, an aesthetic property in the object. So... um, this construal of judgments of beauty accounts I think for the fact that even if we knew all the properties of an object even if we had a full description of the object it would still be an open question um, as to whether that object would be beautiful and um, that is because um, whether or not the object can or will be judged to be beautiful furthermore depends on uh, the viewer on the perspective of uh, the subject secondly While an aesthetic judgment is only indirectly concerned with the object of experience, it is directly related to our intellectual activities that are involved in reflecting on the object. And this further aspect of Kant's conception accounts for the thought that even um, though we cannot definitively prove um, the adequacy of an aesthetic judgment by pointing to particular features in the object, um, we don't regard the judgment as entirely contingent on a particular individual's perspective. Rather, we regard such judgments as being similar to to objective judgments in virtue of containing a claim to universality. And um, it's this feature which distinguishes aesthetic judgments from claims about ordinary feelings, where we don't want to um, uh, insist that others come to feel about things in the same way as we do. So um, this uh, feature of his account, I think also um, make sense of the phenomenological difference between aesthetic experiences on the one hand and um, other emotional responses um, where only the former but not the latter seem to engage us uh, intellectually. So taking these two um, Kantian claims on board, I propose to construe the ascription of beauty to a scientific theory as similarly concerned with a second order um, response to our intellectual engagement with the theory. More specifically, um, I want to suggest that it's a response to our awareness of um, a fit between our intellectual capacities and the phenomena that we come to understand by means of the theory. So, in regarding a theory as beautiful, I want to argue that we're not directly responding to what the theory says, we're not directly responding to, um, say, its um, derivation of Newton's laws, uh, laws of motion. Um, nor are we directly responding to how the theory says what it says, for instance, that um, it derives uh, those laws um, by a series of simple steps. But rather, um, I suggest that that, um, in aesthetic judgments, we express our appreciation of um, the fit between our intellectual capacities and the phenomena that the theory helps us to understand. So... um, on this proposal, aesthetic judgments in science are essentially self-reflective. That is, they are ultimately relying on a reflection um, on our own intellectual activities. Um, and it's this reflection, um, um, well, this reflection, I think, may come in different forms. So it may be reflection of the scientist as she's doing science. Um, as she's constructing a theory and and gaining understanding of the phenomena by means of the theory. Um, and I think this is what is going on when, um, for instance, Heisenberg explains his um, elevation or his uh, excitement about the insight that he's gaining through his calculations um, um, that, that led him to the formulation of his, his, his uh, theory of, of quantum mechanics. And um, I think, um, similarly, the reflection that I'm referring to may also be found in the intellectual engagement with already existing theories. So um, not only the the scientist herself, but the student of science um, may um, regard a theory as beautiful, um, precisely because she, um, um, uh, in reflecting on the theory, she becomes aware of her own um, uh, intellectual capacities for understanding the phenomena that the theory purports to explain. So I want to say that in both these cases of the construction of new theories and the understanding of extant ones, we can understand the aesthetic appreciation of a the theory as ultimately a response to our own intellectual capacities that are involved in um, gaining understanding of the natural world. Um, now, I think that this proposed conception can account for the fact that um, certain features of a theory, including, for instance, um, the theory's simplicity or its capacity to unify a variety of phenomena or um, its explanatory power or fruitfulness, have um, often been um, regarded as aesthetic criteria. So I think this is because um, theories with these properties can uh, make phenomena understandable to us and thus um, help us become aware of this harmony that I've um, alluded to. Um, so, I think a more comprehensive account will have to look at uh, individual aesthetic criteria on a case by case basis. But it seems to me that um, it's at least prima facie plausible to suggest that the, the mentioned criteria do match the, the proposed account. So, for instance, it seems plausible that uh, a simple theory makes understanding easier, a unified theory helps us to understand a variety of phenomena in a way that draws out um, the relations between those phenomena. Um, or a theory with strong explanatory power makes understanding of a large set of phenomena possible by subsuming them under a smaller number of general principles and uh, a fruitful theory enables understanding in other areas of inquiry. Um, What is important um, about this account though is I think that while um, it it can explain why we regard these um, classical um, uh, aesthetic criteria that have... Um, had a lot of attention in particular in the physical and mathematical sciences where we we can explain why these criteria have been regarded as aesthetic criteria Um, the account also leaves room for other aesthetic um, criteria so for instance i think that it account it can account for um, the kind of mannerist conception that um, i attributed to, to kepler Um, according to which theories that express how the chaotic or the monstrous um, uh, uh, derive from a simple ordering principle are regarded as aesthetically pleasing. So theories um, that realize such mannerist ideals can be regarded as aesthetically pleasing, um, I think, Again, precisely because they provide an understanding of the appearance of chaos by reference to a simple principle, and therefore may um, trigger the, the second order awareness, uh, order awareness of um, the fit between our intellectual capacities and the phenomena that um, we thereby um, a, uh, understand. Now, the adwa- advantage of um, this Kantian proposal is, I think, that um, it promises to explain the apparent diversity. Um, of aesthetic criteria in different uh, contexts, different um, historical periods, or different um, cultural settings, um, as being grounded in a common constant. Um, So it's not simply that particular aesthetic properties, um, such as simplicity or unity, for instance, determine whether a theory is beautiful, but rather um, what is commonly regarded as uh, aesthetic criteria um, are properties of theories that are only indirectly um, the source of an aesthetic response where such a response directly relates to the felt harmony between the world and um, uh, the requirements of our intellect so that's my my proposal for answering um, the first question how then does this um, conception of aesthetics shed light on the relation between um, aesthetic considerations and the truth of theories. So I, I here come to um, section three. What I want to suggest is that even though aesthetic considerations um, don't provide an infallible indication of uh, true, the truth of theories, they offer a legitimate heuristic guide for scientists. So um, that's my proposal for how to think about um, the second question. And I think that this proposal um, may fulfill the, the, criteria, the, the desiderata that I have laid down um, for a satisfactory account of beauty and science. Um, so what I want to do now is sketch um, um, in a bit more de- detail how I think such an account may go. So what I want to suggest first is that with respect to um, A, desideratum A, we can account for the instability of the connection between the beauty of a theory and its success. Um, and thereby overcome the problem that uh, threatened the Pythagorean position. But we can do so by contrast with the subjectivist um, without construing aesthetic judgments as entirely contingent on subjective, um, on the subjective viewpoint. Moreover, um, with respect to Desideratum B, I suggest that we can account for a legitimate pull of aesthetic considerations on scientists and thereby overcome the problem that... Um, uh, the subjectivist um, uh, was concerned with. Um, but we can do this without recourse to any metaphysical connection between the beauty o- um, of a theory and its truth, and um, uh, thus, um, by contrast, um, with the Pythagorean account. So let me say a few words uh, about both these claims. First, regarding A, A, um, I think that the apparently unstable link between aesthetic judgments and the success of theories and the history of science is compatible with the proposed conception um, insofar as there are various ways in which beauty and understanding can come apart. And um, so some theories may help us understand phenomena but not be regarded as beautiful and vice versa. So um, first in the case in which um, we gain understanding of the world by means of a theory without finding it beautiful um, I think that this simply underwrites the claim that the beauty of a theory is not simply is not just determined by its helping us achieve understanding but is triggered by a further reflection um, resulting in our awareness of the apparent fit between our capacities of understanding and the phenomena to be understood so um, um, such awareness may of course be affected by the theory Um, so a theory may be hugely complicated and may make it difficult for us to um, become aware of this fit, Um, but um, it may also be affected by the perspective of the individual Uh, so for instance you may be too preoccupied with uh, with, uh, understanding the theory in order to appreciate it aesthetically so there may be um, examples um, where uh, understanding and beauty come apart in this way In other cases, and I think more importantly for present purposes, we may also consider a theory beautiful when we believe um, it helps us understand the world, regardless of whether that belief is correct. So if we are mistaken about our belief that we have understood something, um, aesthetic appreciation may fail to track genuine understanding. And in triv- trivial cases um, where we've simply overlooked, um, say, a part of the phenomena to be uh, um, explained or um, have misunderstood part of the theory, such, um, um, such misunderstanding may be overcome relatively easily. But in less trivial cases, um, it, it may be that theories are considered be- beautiful by a whole generation of scientists, um, even if they later turn out to be uh, false, And in such cases, I want to argue that it nevertheless seems plausible to say that the theories were considered beautiful given that within their context and against the relevant background knowledge, they appear to provide understanding of the phenomena. Moreover, I think it's also plausible that we may be able to appreciate the beauty of a failed theory on the condition that we take such background considerations into account so by imaginatively projecting ourselves into the cognitive context of the, of the time or place, um, we can appreciate the capacity of a theory to provide understanding given that context. And in this way, um, for instance, we may be able to see the beauty of, a, of the Ptolemaic system, even knowing that um, it doesn't give a true account of the phenomena. Um, and I think that neither of these cases in which beauty and understanding come apart um, therefore contradicts the, the claim that um, in regarding a theory as beautiful, we express appreciation of the experience fit between our uh, capacities for understanding and the phenomena to be understood. Now, one might worry that um, having said all this, the subjective, subjectivist challenge now appears particularly pressing Um, And the worry is that if aesthetic judgments indicate only um, our awareness of gaining understanding, where this awareness may fail to track truth, um, then the link between the beauty of a theory and its truth may appear contingent after all. Um, So I want to say um, a few words about um, my suggestion regarding Desideratum B. So even if um, our awareness of gaining understanding um, of the phenomena and by virtue of this, of our aesthetic responses, aren't sufficient indication for actually having a true account of the phenomena, I want to suggest that scientists, um, nevertheless, have a reason to take aesthetic considerations into account. And this is, I think, because in seeking beauty, scientists precisely search for understanding of the world. And understanding, uh, or providing understanding, um, I take it, is an essential requirement for any successful theory. So since aesthetic judgments are responses to intellectual processes that condition such understanding, aesthetic considerations therefore offer a heuristic guide in our search for successful theories. And it's for this reason that aesthetic considerations can be regarded as having a legitimate pull on scientists, even if they are not infallible. So um, when... I I mentioned Heisenberg earlier. When Heisenberg was struck by the beauty of the theory that he was in the process of um, formulating, he had a reason to follow his aesthetic response insofar as this was an indication of the inkling of understanding, of of, um, gaining understanding of the phenomena um, by means of the theory um, um, that he uh, was developing. Now. I think that this proposal doesn't yet tell us how to distinguish good from bad or successful from unsuccessful aesthetic judgments. So it doesn't yet um, formulate criteria for identifying those aesthetic responses that will likely lead to true true theories. And one may think that um, such criteria will in the end depend on what particular um, conception of the relationship between understanding and truth we um, presuppose. And I think that these questions will have to be worked out in a full um, story, a full account of um, uh, an answer to question two. But here I want to make um, just a couple of remarks. So first of all, um, while perhaps unsurprisingly, I would tend to go for um, a a transcendental conception um, that following Friedman and others um, takes truth to fall out of the, the ideal end of an ongoing process of gaining understanding, an ongoing process of, of inquiry, I think that um, the proposed account is compa- compatible also with other um, readings, um, both realist and, um, and more pragmatist readings of the understanding-truth relation. Um, so while in the end I want to have a, a more detailed account of this, um, this relation, I believe that for now I can remain relatively neuter- neutral on the question here. Um, And moreover, despite um, the the sketchiness here of this proposed answer to the second question, I think that the suggested account nevertheless gives us enough reason to regard um, considerations of beauty as not entirely contingent responses that are to be relegated from science, but rather as through their link to understanding as indirectly tied to the conditions of successful theories. And it's this insight that... um, I believe sheds light on the apparently uh, peculiar fact that scientists, uh, on the one hand, um, have um, have uh, reason to be guided in their inquiries by aesthetic considerations, while on the other hand, relying on such gui- guidance has also often led them astray, has has not always resulted in um, true true theories. So I'd like to um, conclude by suggesting that um, if we understand aesthetic considerations in science as Second-order responses, um, in the way that I've uh, proposed, we have a promising framework for thinking about um, uh, the role and, and nature of aesthetic um, judgments in science. So, that's up there. Thank you.